And these are not individual women's problems. Um, it is derived from the, the male norm system that we all work in. And so the solutions then become not that we don't help each individual woman, but solutions are larger and that we've got to fix the culture of the workplace so that women are valued and supported to the same extent as men are. When people talk about gender bias and sexism, what comes to mind? Are you clear about when gender bias happens to you and around you? Or does it feel so common it's hard to discern? I hold many stories from women who've experienced everything from biases to blatant sexism and misogyny at work, at home, at school, at church, at the beach, at the store, gosh, everywhere. This may sound familiar to many of you, you know, the cat calls, the degrading comments, the uninvited touches, the over-talking and mansplaining, the hostility, the passing over for promotions, lower pay, the different standards, the blame, the fear of backlash or making things worse, the violence. I hear the fatigue filled with a fed up fire from so many of you. And many of the women I talk with struggle to even see the hostility they experience in the workplace and the spaces they do life in because it feels so dang normal. I also hear way too many stories of women turning on themselves and each other as a result of internalizing the many toxic messages about women and seeing how women are so poorly treated. The mixed messages about how to respond to gender bias and sexism keep us flailing, even when there are efforts to make meaningful change. We need to make these changes at all levels of leadership, and as long as the burden to make the changes continue to be on those who've been harmed, nothing's really going to change. When we gather collectively, we're a force. And yet, internalized gender bias and misogyny gets in the way. Until we see how gender bias impacts us all, we'll continue to turn on each other, whether directly or by supporting those with counter-interests to our own. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. All genders carry the burdens of misogyny, sexism, and gender bias. You know, and Working on this interview, I've done a lot of reflecting on my own professional experiences, and I keep coming back to some of my bosses and mentors in my life, um, most of these women in my earlier years who taught me how to protect myself in various settings. Like They would sit me down before internships or traveling to have some really cool ex professional experiences and how to dress, how to communicate, what dangers to look out for, like not getting stuck in a room alone away from the door or how to navigate creepy come-ons and the intrusive comments about my body or looks and how to redirect these microaggressions in ways that just keep the peace. And, you know, in hindsight, it's wild how I already knew so much of what my mentors shared with me was true and normal, which is weird to say. I mean, sure, we shared outrage and disgust at the state of affairs for women, even back in the day, but there was this understanding that these experiences simply were just the norm. And so the need to protect and adapt was necessary. Oof. 
gender bias, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy. These are all essential words to understand. They seem to get thrown around often without the depth of understanding needed. And there are many scholars and activists that have cultivated deep bodies of work on these topics, which is worth going in and checking out. But for an overview for this conversation, I just want to note that gender bias is where favoritism and preferences are shown to one gender over others. And sexism is like a prejudice or stereotyping or discrimination, typically against women on the basis of sex. Misogyny is the deep dislike or even contempt. There's that word contempt or ingrained prejudice against women. And patriarchy is a system of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from that power. Now, none of us remain unscathed from these ideologies. And we, speaking to women here, perpetuate more harm to ourselves and others when we internalize these views. Our experiences in our families, society, places of work, faith communities, media of all kinds feel our internalized gender stereotypes and inequalities. And when we internalize these biases, we often end up justifying and defending the exact gender inequalities that cause so much harm, which can feel disorienting and demoralizing. And this psychological brainwashing does so much harm. And to cultivate the changes on how women are treated, we must first start by doing the inner work to uncover the burdens of sexism and gender biases in ourselves. And I love these words from Tiffany Bloom. She's the author of the book, Pray Tell, and a previous Unburdened Leader guest. And she said, if women are untrusting of themselves due to social and spiritual conditioning, then learning to trust your body, your instincts, your intellect, and your wisdom is a radical resistance in a world desperate to keep women in their, quote, place. I really love that. And today's Unburdened Leader guest offers even like more language and even a framework to help address gender bias through tangible practices and words to help us understand the many nuances and complexities around identifying gender bias in ourselves and others and how we can make actionable change. Dr. Amy Deal is an award-winning information technology leader, currently serving as Chief Information Officer at Wilson College in Pennsylvania, and is a gender equity researcher and co-author of the new book, Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. She's also written numerous scholarly journal articles and book chapters. Her writing has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Ms. Magazine, and she is a sought-after speaker, consultant, and lawsuit expert witness. Listen for Amy's breakdown of the six glass walls of gender bias and notice what comes up for you as she shares them. Pay attention to what Amy shared when I asked her to dive deeper into the glass wall of hostility and acquiescence. These two of the six glass walls really stood out to me and I really can't wait to hear what you think about them. And notice when Amy pushes back on the popular recommendations for women to lean in or just get more confidence. 
All right, y'all. Now, please welcome Dr. Amy Deal to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Amy, thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. <laughs> it's going to be my trademark. I get so excited when I uh, when I dive into a guest's work and I can't stop talking about it. And I'm really excited for listeners to know why they need to be excited about this important work. So I want to start off just having you do some definitions. How do you define gender and gender bias? Yeah, so I, I really appreciate this question. And I appreciate the fact that it is a foundational question because it really is foundational to all of the work that I've been doing around women in the workplace. Um, I want to start with gender. So gender differs from sex. A lot of times people use these terms interchangeably, but they are actually, they are different terms. So sex is defined biologically, uh, male, female, intersex. Um, it has a biological definition, but gender is socially constructed and it's in terms of how people identify. So a person may have a female sex, but not identify as a woman, woman uh, gender. Um, the other aspect of gender is that it is a spe- it's a spectrum. It's not, in fact, sex isn't binary either, but neither, but certainly gender is not binary. Um, so often in my research, I do talk about men and women, um, but I recognize that um, gender is not binary. Um, it's, it's how a person chooses to um, chooses to identify. And then we move on to gender bias and. We talk about gender bias. What we're often talking about here is bias against women. At least that's the definition that I use in my work. Um, but the the general definition that I use for gender bias is barriers that arise from cultural beliefs about gender, as well as workplace structures, practices, and patterns of interaction that favor men. Um, so what we see with gender bias is sometimes it's subtle and it's unconscious. Other times it's very conscious and deliberate um, and overt. But in terms of my work uh, with uh, women in the workplace, that's how I define it. In fact, that's the the fact that it's comprised of these barriers. That became the the focus of my work and the focus of my new book, um, Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers, Still Holding Women Back at Work. What we're looking at is what are those barriers? And what we try to do in the book is tease out in a research-based way all of the barriers that make up gender bias and all of the facets um, within those barriers um, to help people understand that Gender bias isn't a big nebulous concept. It's actually a set of practices, patterns of behavior, um, norms in the workplace. Um, again, the inadvertently or advertently favor favor men over women and people of other genders. Yeah, I really appreciate that. In your book, you you make these uh, glass walls, the six gender mm-hmm. bias barriers, very tangible. I mean, I was reading this and I just I kept feeling like. It's felt in my body like, oh, oh, yeah, like the you did some qual and quantitative research. And, you know, you just some of these interviews, I feel like I've lived some of that. I know so many of the people I've yeah. worked with and that I know that almost it's like there's there's a little bit and we'll get into this in a little bit later. But like they're like, eh, that's just how it is. And so the fact that you made it so tangible and even actionable, whether it's for allies, for those of us who identify as women and and also leaders. It's just really great. And I, I want you to go a little bit further, though, about how your book is different than maybe conventional wisdom on this topic. Yeah. So um, my co-author and I, Dr. Leanne Dubinsky, we met at a conference in 2014. 
And she had had uh, research on women in faith-based nonprofit organizations that she had done for her dissertation. I had dissertation research based on women in higher education. The sets of research were very similar in that we were both looking at the challenges that these women were facing. And so at this conference, we started talking and we realized that the barriers that the women were facing were very similar, even though the industries were very different. Higher education is very different than faith-based religion, right? Often we think of higher education as more progressive and, and liberal, whereas, you know, religion is quite conservative. So we thought, initially we thought, well, that probably these women are dealing with different things. But as we started talking, we realized, no, they were dealing with very similar things. And we quickly came to the um, conclusion that it was not a factor of the woman's industry or her particular workplace or the, the sector or even necessarily the country that she was working in. It was a fact of being a woman at work. And so the work that we've done over the past nine years has been to f like flesh that out. Um, but what we did from that, that research is we published a qualitative journal article looking at the similarities and the differences between our two, um, our two sets of research. And after that, we partnered with two quantitative researchers, uh, Dr. Amber Stevenson and Dr. David Wong, um, to create a scale to measure gender bias. And this is where I'm getting to the book. <laughs> As part of scale development, we were able to tease out the six primary um, gender bias barriers, um, gender bias factors. And that's research that, again, has been published in a, in a journal. And so what we did, what Dr. Dominsky, Leanne, and I did with those six barriers as we took them for the book, and we thought we can frame a book around this. These, these are the primary six barriers, and then we did more qualitative research on top of that to flesh out everything that falls underneath each of the, the primary um, six barriers. This is a research-driven book. We did not just pull these six barriers out of our head or out of our favorite ones or out of the ones that we thought were like most, that we see most prevalently written about. No, we did this in a research-based way so that we're looking at this whole concept of gender bias and how can we break it apart. Way back when Leanne and I first published that first journal article, we had it broken down into 20, I forget my numbers, but it's 27 or 28 barriers. And we kept, and we knew, like I knew, they have to cluster in the group somehow. We just couldn't see it until we did the scale development. What we tried to do is be as comprehensive, comprehensive as we could about identifying the barriers, creating names for them. Not all of them had names um, and uh, giving lots of good examples so that people, as they read it, can say, oh, this has happened to me. Maybe this hasn't happened to me yeah. yet. Maybe this happened to my colleague, but so that they can identify it when it does happen to them. And then once you can identify it, then you can take steps to move forward to do something about it, which we also talk about in the book. Absolutely. And I think it's just really important to underscore what you've done with this research is it's, there's just like, this is something that happens to women. It's not because women are the problem. That's and right. So I think that's just understanding this. It's it's just, it's so hard for folks to really get out of, I need to keep changing. So I think that's just really powerful. And I'm wondering for you, just personally, in your own professional, mm -hmm. personal and professional journey, you're reading the, get, collecting the data, you're mm -hmm. hearing these interviews, you're collating everything. What was going through your mind as you re re reviewed all of this and it kept <laughs> yeah. coming in? Yeah, how is that impacting you personally and professionally? When I did my dissertation, my dissertation was on how women in higher education leadership make meaning of adversity. I interviewed 26 women um, presidents, vice presidents, provosts of colleges and universities. And um, often, most usually, people have a personal tie or connection to the research that they're doing. And I certainly did. I had been going through different bouts of adversity, and I was trying to make sense of it for myself. And I had also 
recognize that I was experiencing adversity or barriers professionally, Mm. right? People were looking at me differently than they were looking at my male colleagues. Um, And uh, one of the examples I always like to uh, share is the um, example of how so stepping back, I worked in IT. Okay, IT is male dominated. So to learn how to lead, I was watching the men around me, and I would watch them be authoritative when a decision needed to be made. Right, and anytime somebody, a man was authoritative and said, "We need to go in this direction," the I watch our my coworkers, the the staff just you know they'd follow along. They would you know they they would actually it actually seemed to add to the respect that that male leader had. And I remember one time one meeting where I did the exact same thing that I had seen my male boss do like a hundred times before. And that was, we had this meeting and we couldn't, we didn't come to consensus. We had to make a decision and we didn't come to consensus. And I had seen him a hundred times before say, just at the end of the meeting, end of the hour, just say, okay, we're just going to go in this direction. But nobody complained about that. They're all like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Well, the first time I tried that, I got a lot of pushback and my the, my team was like, what are you doing? You know, they they really didn't feel like I guess that they had been heard. I don't I, like I don't know, but you know, I had act I had behaved in the way I'd seen the men behave and I was getting a different result. And so that started like in my mind like what's going on here? Firstly, I took it personally, right? But For sure. but then, you know, part of doing this dissertation research, the other thing that I had thought before I went to talk to these women was that I thought these women must be really super extraordinary women, which don't get me wrong, they were. But what I found was that the women, in talking to to them about their adversity, they were just like me. Fundamentally, they were no different than me. So what was going through my mind as I'm collecting not only that dissertation research with the interviews, but then all the other data that we've collected is like, it helped me make sense of everything that had happened. And not just that one example, but other things that had happened to me in my professional career to that point. So it was just... You lived it. Yeah, I lived it. Yeah. And, you know, still today, you know, obviously things happen and I can say, well, I know what that is. Um, and I have got my own strategies, you know, for for dealing with it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not just research or disconnected yeah. from its research that you've lived and it's, it validates your own experience. And again, with some of the language you put together in your book, you identified some really um, important nuances of gender bias that either had not had names before, at least that I heard, or you kind of offered a new new labels of other aspects of gender bias. And I'm going to, I want to name a few for you. I'd just love for you to walk me through your thought process and how we can make each of these more visible. So um, let's talk about role incredulity. Incredul- incredulity. <laughs> I was like, wait, I didn't say that yeah. right. Role incredulity. <laughs> let's talk about role incredulity. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say too, like through our, before I get into role incredulity for all of these if something had a name, then we identified the name or the label that it already had. But as Leanne and I worked through the the data, we would we would come up with here's a set of data. We know it all goes mm-hmm. together, but there's no name for it. We you know we looked in the literature and there was just nothing. And so we had to come up with terms for certain certain aspects. And rolling credulity is one of them. Uh, that's been one of the more interesting things to me about this research is being able to name things that, ha- yeah, that have yeah. you know that these terms become come into our lexicon um, because nobody had done that before. Um, so it's kind of cool to be the first one to say, this is what this is. So rolling credulity sure. is when you're, when you're a woman and people assume that you are in a support role or a lower level role than what you're actually in. And so this often happens to women professionals, like women physicians are assumed to be ner- often assumed to be nurses, women lawyers assumed to be court reporters or um, yeah, admin assistants, 
women professors, the admin assistant role, sometimes even students. Another example that one of the women physicians um, gave us, and this was actually a Twitter post, she posted about how she was attending a picnic, like a picnic that included their, not only the physicians, but their partners. And so she attends with her male partner and her male partner is assumed to be the, the physician and she's assumed to be the girlfriend or the wife, right? So it's this idea that you have this role, but you're assumed to be in a lower, you're assumed to be the secretary, you're assumed to be the, you know, the admin. Um, and the problem with this is not only the extra time that women have to spend to say, no, I'm actually the director of XYZ department or whatever I am. It's also the fact that, you know, their, their words and like in the workplace may not be taken as seriously because someone has perceived them to be in a lower level, lower level role. So they lose the authority, some of the authority that's mm. invested in that positions. And talk to me about gender blindness. Gender blindness was an interesting one. And this was an interesting one because my dissertation research, I met several women who didn't believe in gender bias. They didn't believe in a gender gap. They didn't believe that there was any difference between men and women in, at work and how they were perceived. They sort of believed in the, you know, they didn't say it this way, but they believed in the meritocracy, you know, that it all that if any two people being equal, if, no matter what gender they are, as long as they work hard, they will, you know, be able to advance equally. And so gender bias is a lack of awareness that gender is an issue or an axis of power at, at work. These interviews that I did were about like an hour long. And so we had, we had quite a bit of time to go into, you know, a few different things. But they would tell me, like one woman specifically, she was a president. She told me she didn't believe in a gender gap. Later in the interview, she starts talking about something that she referred to as oddities. She called this aud an oddity. And her institution, somebody had donated a plane, like a small airplane to the college. To the college. And so she had to okay. go, you know, onto like wherever the, the airfield was and the, the runway and do a photo op, right? Well, for the photo op, they wanted her to climb up, like on the plane, you know. Well, nobody prepared her for the fact that she should wear like pants and like sneakers, maybe. So she comes, you know, she walks out to the plane and she's got on a dress and heels, like this her normal professional attire. She said to me, she's like, these are just the oddities that happen that, that nobody thinks about. Well, yeah, that's an oddity, but it's also, it's, a, it's also a fact of people in a male normed world or a male normed role don't even think about that because the man and who's a president is not ever going to be wearing a dress with heels or expected to <laughs> she didn't perceive it as anything related to to gender but it was kind of part of the larger the larger male norm works workplace and none of it was it you know it was just an oversight nobody was trying to you know like set her up like that to not be able to jump up on this plane but it was a part of the one of the hidden aspects of the male normed, uh, you know, gender biased workplace. Walk me through diminishment. Diminishment is, um, this doesn't sound like it's a new term. It certainly has been used, you know, people have talked about diminishing women being diminished and stuff, but we applied it as a term to the myriad of behaviors that happen to women. So it's things like when women are put down, when they're given pet names, you know, called mm -hmm. honey or sweetie or missy or kiddo. Oh, awful. When they're belittled, when people make condescending remarks. Um, another new term within diminishment that we, two new terms that we um, coined were untitling and uncredentialing. And so this happens to women who have a title, a professional title, like I have the title of doctor, or women that have titles like coach or uh, maybe uh, religious titles or even military titles. What we find is often women are referred to 
by their first name and settings where their male counterpart is referred to by his title, like in these uh, formal settings. Um, but anyway, it's just a type, a, a type of a, a diminishment of women where, you know, they're not seen as warranting the, the, the title in those uh, professional, professional settings. It's subtle. It's insidious, mm-hmm. right? It feels natural. It's a, it, in yeah, it just, that's a really powerful one. I've seen that happen, had that happen. And even sometimes find myself kind of like, you know, checking it too. It's really in the air we breathe for sure. Talk to me about credibility deficits. Yeah, credibility deficit. This is when women's words or statements are just not believed. And and it's not that everybody, uh, that women or men always say anything that's, that nothing should be questioned, right? But often what we find is that women, you know, they make a statement and they'd be like asked, are you sure that's right? Or they would be sitting with a man beside them and the person would turn to the man and ask for that man to second what they just said, right? Even though this woman was the expert on the particular topic, you know? And so I say to that, it's it's not that you can't question what somebody says, but you only question if you can back it up with a rationale, you know, not just saying, are you sure, you know? I, one of the examples in the book that I kind of laugh laugh at, and I just had to include this one in the book because it made me laugh. Um, and it was about the public sometimes not trusting women experts. And there was this woman, um, she was a space museum tour guide, right? And she said, male tourists would often question her and they'd be like, sweetie, are you sure that's right? You know, she's giving a, as she's giving a tour. And she said it became tempting for her to respond, yes, you idiot. I studied for months in order to make up lies about people who gave their lives for this nation. <laughs> like, I would have wanted to respond that same way, too, you know, um, when being questioned over and over again whenever it's your job. You know, your job is to, you know, communicate facts about, you know, the, the museum or the history of the museum uh, or the history that the museum is portraying. And and you're you're just being, um, you know, questioned by the tourists who think that they... They, they maybe know more than you do or 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 what I don't know <laughs> you know it's interesting as I reflected on that one and whether I've pushed back or I've seen other people push back there's also in this like defensiveness of the folks who you know were partaking in credibility deficit mm-hmm. oh it's just their generation oh yeah you know they they don't have exposure oh that's just their person like we almost like minimize that so that it's just this almost yeah. like, you know, just kind of suck it up. It's just, you know, let's just, we make excuses versus you're right. We we got work to do and this is hard. It's always kind of explaining away the, the offender. That's right. In, oh, that's right. In that too. This one of the things I believe is really worth uh-huh. noting too is uh, you write about invisible uh-huh. contributions. Mm-hmm. Invisible contributions happen when women's work goes unseen and unrecognized. And I'll give you another story. I had this happen to me just recently. So there was a an, an article written by a media outlet, media outlet. The outlet was discussing the, a, a recent Harvard Business Review article written by myself and my two co-authors, Leanne Dubinsky and Amber Stevenson. The outlet in their article referred to us as the researchers. Our names were not anywhere, even though we had written this whole you know, this article and the, this particular media outlet's article was all about our article, you know, all about our research. I wrote to the journalist and I kindly asked this person to put our name <laughs> into the um, into the article. And I didn't hear back um, to make a long story short. Um, I didn't get any uh, response. Um, this is what happens to women all the time. Right. But again, it's just how insidious this is. And it's, you know, like baked into the culture where 
you know, the examples in the book were like, or one of the examples was like where a woman's um, research on, I forget what the research topic was right now, but her research was discussed on a radio interview, but they called in two male historians to talk about her research and also didn't, you know, credit her. Um, it is a failure of the media outlets and, you know, this stuff needs called out, but it's definitely a larger phenomenon with women's work not being, not seen as meriting, meriting cred, credit. Um, and it happens all the time at work. And when it happens in the work in the workplace, it can be hugely demoralizing. Um, and it also means not only like less credit for the work that you've done, but also, you know, less promotions, less ability to advance. Because if you're not, if you're not getting recognized for the work that you've done, then, you know, that, that can impact your long term um, advancement, professional advancement in the in the workplace. Yeah. It's, I mean, the phenomenon extends to the work that women do outside of the workplace too, that's invisible and it's just expected. And there's a, almost this intersection, I feel like with gender blindness and invisible contributions too, because if, you know, you know, we don't think about, oh yeah, this, this, this leader is, is still nursing or, you know, this, this leader, anything around their physicality or things that are connected to them having other roles, like possibly parenting that they just don't, think about, you know, too, using a bathroom, the need for a bathroom, especially if they're cycling and um, different types of things. And but the, these invisible contributions, it's if they do it at work, they're also not even aware of the body of work that so many are carrying at home, too. So it's it's just a multi it's a multitude. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. And when you start talking about gender biases and sexism, things will get stirred up. But I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small and even discover your own internalized biases. Now leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights, but it's brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism and acquiescence at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to shift to, I, I don't know if it's like my favorite chapter, but it's the one that really hit me between the eyes. I know I've written, I was writing with you about as I was prepping for our conversation and 
spoke to before we started recording and you, one of the the gender barriers is what you titled acquiescence. And I feel like that is the last 20 years of my work. I mean, I feel like there's so much that you, as I reflected on my own workplace experience and also um, my clinical and leadership work with so many people I talk to. So why don't you walk me through the gender barrier of acquiescence, and then I'd love to hear what are some of the work-life conflicts women face that lead to acquiescence? Yeah, so acquiescence is the sixth, and we and what I say about it, what we say about it is that it's likely a, the consequence of all the other five barriers that come before yeah. it, right? So acquiescence, and it, it can seem like, oh, maybe we're putting the blame on women, but we're not here. Um, first thing mm-hmm. I want to st- state about this this barrier acquiescence and the barriers, the sub-barriers that make it, make up acquiescence, um, they seem like they're an individual woman's problem, but they're not. They're part of, they all derive from the, the larger male-normed workplace that, puts yes. these ex- that tries to put these expectations on individual women, even though that's not where they, that's not where they belong. Um, so what happens with acquiescence is that women um, adapt to the limitations that they're experiencing in the workplace and they, um, and I'll just start through the the sub barriers, and we'll get a, we'll get a better understanding. So the first one of the first sub barrier of um, acquiescence is work life conflict, which work life conflict can be conceived of as affecting you know all of us, anyone, no matter who you are. But we find that it has much more greater impact on women and especially mothers um, because things like work hours expectations, um, long hours that assume everyone has a partner at home to deal with the housework and the childcare. Of course, motherhood. We always hear the term working mother, but we never hear the term working father. <laughs> and of course, uh-huh. all mothers are working, no matter where they're working. <laughs> um, uh, talk about maternity leave, um, demands that women return from a too short leave, even if they're lucky enough to work in an organization that offers paid leave. We tell stories of women that felt that they had to come back sooner because of the pressures of their jobs, um, sooner than what even that they had uh, paid leave for. And of course, there's the too many women in the United States that still work in organizations that offer nothing. Um, and then the other thing we see in work-life conflict is often in a heterosexual relationship, the husband's career takes priority. And sometimes that's because the husband is earning more than than the wife, than the woman. But also, um, we've, there's been research that shows that even when women earn more and the couple has kids, the woman was still taking on more than her the average share of uh, housework. The research that this was derived from suggests that it may be in part to help alleviate his, the husband's psychological distress about not being the the high earner, the, the breadwinner. Um, and then move on to other aspects of acquiescence. Um, the next one is self-blame. And that's what, yes. what happens right, when women blame themselves for systemic or organizational problems that are not their fault. Um, yep. And they're often actually encouraged to do so. Um, there was a story that we told in the book of a woman who was told by her manager that she was too ambitious. And she was very ashamed. You know, she heard this from her manager. She was very ashamed. And oh, he also told her she should be more quiet. Um, but later she learned that the manager said the same thing to every new female team member. Like, it wasn't just her. <laughs> so there's things like that. Also things like, I tell the story of a woman, this is a woman that I had interviewed in my dissertation who had um, come into a new role as a VP of um, finance. And there was an audit that was done and they had found errors that had occurred before her. So they had preceded her. They weren't on her watch, right? But she was held accountable for them. And I interviewed her eight years after this this 
terrible audit had taken place. She said that she still carried the, the um, she still personalized the, what had happened there. And she personalized, she took, she took on the blame of what had happened to her, the people that worked under her, even though the errors mm-hmm. were not her fault. And even though it was like what she was doing was trying to clean up, you know, the accounting practices and make everything right. You know, she still took on the, the self-blame for that. And I, you know, um, so after self-blame, then the next one is self-silencing. And self-silencing happens right. when women keep silent on sexism or women's rights. Often we see women keeping silent on harassment that they experience. And it's because they're trying to protect themselves. Like they fear the backlash. If they stand up for other women or if they stand up for what's happened to them, they fear they fear the backlash. There are still too many times whenever women are harassed and it's the woman that's put on leave and the harasser that's still working. Um, and it needs to be the reverse, right? <laughs> um, uh, so often women self-silence and it's a self-protection, um, totally a self-protection mechanism. 100%. The, yeah. 100%. And then the last part of uh, acquiescence is uh, self-limited aspirations. And it happens, there's two types. One is what we call a psychological glass ceiling. And that's when women internalize the message that they are not enough. And they believe that they're not capable of professional growth or professional advancement or whatever they're, they would conceive of as their next, uh, their next step. And the other second aspect is something we call retreating, when women just retreat. In this instance, they know that they're capable, um, but they choose not to advance because they're burnt out from dealing with all the sexism. And also they, they see what happens to other women who do take on leadership all the hassles that these women face that the men just don't face and that they, they decide they don't want it. It's just not worth their time. It's not worth their energy. And so they, they retreat. Um, they decide to stay in the role that they have. Sometimes women decide to leave the company that they're in, maybe go work for themselves. They choose something that's more uh, firming, that's better for their own um, psychological mental health. And the thing I say about acquiescence, all of these, they're all rational choices. They're all very rational choices for the person who's in that position. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 not that, you know, they are like, oh, you know, they could have this high position, but, you know, why wouldn't they want that? Well, it's a rational choice. You want to protect your own health, protect your own, you know, happiness. And these are not individual women's problems. Um, it is derived from the the male norm system that we all that we all work in. And so the solutions yeah. then become not trying to not that we don't help each individual woman, but the solutions are larger and that we've got to fix the culture of the workplace so that women are valued and supported to the same extent as men are. I want to just take a moment to unpack some of the, the self-blame, self-silencing yeah. and yeah, self-limiting yeah, aspirations, because I, I think with the self-blame piece too, it is really hard for those that I've worked with and even for myself for a while to unhook from that. There's almost like, are you sure? Like they can get the theory oh yeah, this is a system. Oh yeah, this isn't me. But then if someone's worked in trauma for 20 years, the, especially those, oh, we often call the inner critics, those those parts of protecting that say you suck, it's your fault, it's all you, shame-oriented, are born out of relational trauma and relational wounding. So we look at this, the statistics for women too around uh, violence, around relational wounding, around betrayal. That piece is really hard to, unhook from and takes some time to unhook from. I just want to say it's like homeostasis is a beast and it fights to the death to maintain status quo. And the self-silencing, I'm with you. It's like just naming it, but to say that there's some great cost standing up for yourself. You know, your safety, your, your salary, 
your ability to stay housed and have health care. And you, know, you address these in your book in a little bit more detail, but I feel like it's really important, like, oh no, I self-silence and I self-blame something's wrong. Like, no, 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 no. It's like, it's more of like, how do I help shift how I see myself in this burdened world? And sometimes, and th- th- there's such deep grief with self-silencing, Amy, that I've worked with folks saying, I did the best I could. I still hate that that was my best with what I had at the time, whether they were silent to protect their job or didn't stand up for somebody else. Um, and so the echoes of that take some time. And then the self-limiting aspirations, I can't even tell you, like in so many circles I've been, ambitious for a woman is like a dirty word. Like saying, oh, she's so ambitious is not like, oh, that's a great thing. It's like, oh, she's so ambitious. And so there's this sense of not wanting to lose our belonging and our community. And it's just brought up so many internal polarities of folks just like, I'm so excited about this, but what are people going to think? Or the pushback from other folks, like you got to pay your dues these ways. So I, I just wanted, I mean, and that's such the tip of the iceberg on these, but I just am so grateful uh, for for you naming this and having this. And, and again, the validation of, okay, I'm in self-blame. How much do I want to continue? How do I befriend what's going on within me? And then unburden that. And also then you have more agency and freedom, I think, to push back on the systems and on your passion. So I just just really loved how you laid that out. It really just was speaking to what I've experienced personally, but also professionally. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's also It also goes to one of the points of the whole book is to help people not pers- take personally this any aspect of gender bias that happens to them. Um, that was my initial thing that I did when I was young and I didn't know, you know what was happening. I thought it, you know I was at fault. Um, so it's helpful to have the names and also to know that it's a it is a bigger phenomenon and it's not even though it feels personal to you, it is not right. Um, and just knowing that it can give women, I think, a lot of a lot more freedom, um, you know, to to say, hey, it's not it's not me. It's something bigger than me. And there's there are steps that we can take to address it, but it's not it's not a personal failing. Yeah, it, it's tricky though because I mean, there's a part of me, I mean, that says it is freaking personal. Like you're attacking me, and mm-hmm. and then I'm turning on myself as a result to try and survive. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like. It's not just because I, I'm not the problem, even though like, what can I do? It's, I, mm-hmm. I just think it's a really big mind F to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a bit of an internal quagmire yeah. when someone's person identity, their personhood, their dignity yeah. is there's something about that. But to say it's not all on me to be the solution yeah. Yeah. is so hard to get to, but I think we just need to keep saying it. And that's the whole trick of it, right, is that the people who are perpetuating this, they want it to feel personal to you. That's why they uh, go after, you know, your, yeah, fair. like, the women's aspect of their identity. They want it to feel that way. Um, you know, I think of um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how people go after her. Oh, my gosh, the hate that she gets. I don't know how she does it, but... <laughs> yeah. but, um, but people go after her, you know, personally. And the whole point of it is is to make her an example to other women to say, hey, if you're going to be a representative, you want to be on the political stage, this is going to happen to you too. Even with these these perpetrators not thinking about what they're doing, it is a, it's a larger phenomenon to keep women in their place. It, it And it works. It's because yeah. I have heard people say, oh, I could not do that. 
Yeah. Because I don't want to go through that. So they, the self-limiting aspirations, just other self-silencing. Exactly. Of, and I mean, exactly. I, I, I think uh-huh. I, there's just an appeasing, complicit, compliant piece that's baked into all of this too, is self-protection too. And it just what's, and it's, what's tricky is that mode of self-protection. It works, but it eats away at us. And so it's like, it's like surface works, but there's such a cost. So what are the stakes for leaders and business owners to address acquiescence and particularly, you know, these work-life challenges will start there that women face in a meaningful way? Yeah. So in the book, we put the onus on on leaders to make culture change within their workplaces to make sure that women are fully supported at work, that they're not just put into token positions and then not supported in those positions, which is still happening far far too often. Some of these, they're very, um, I think of them as easy solutions (laughs) that can be put into place, you know, like we'll talk about like work hours expectations. So there's assuming that everyone works long hours. Well, put from the top, put boundaries on at the hours that people work and model that, you know, may, let an eight hour day or whatever your work day is be that eight hour day. Um, and don't put expectations on people to stay late for meetings, um, you know, to have meetings in the evenings or on weekends or even even early mornings, because people that have, you know, children have got school schedules or daycare schedules where they it's very, very tough for them to keep up with the man who's in a role who has a wife at home taking care of all the the the, the needs of the house and the needs of the the kids or even people who are more affluent maybe both partners work but they've got money for domestic care and and things like that where they can out, outsource it so that's one thing the other thing would be like a whole around the whole parental leave thing um some states have programs most of the states don't but if you're an organizational leader, that doesn't stop you from having a good parental leave program. And, uh, you know, I'll say, too, the longer, the better um, in terms of the amount of time, um, you know, two weeks, four weeks. It, it isn't enough, you know. No. Um, but the more that you can do to have a paid parental leave program that covers both partners, no matter their gender, and allows them to um, take time with a new with a new baby or a, or a child who is sick or even elder elder care is a big a big thing right um again it's all about like modeling the behavior making sure that making sure that each and every person has got your full support so that they feel like they if they've got an issue at home or something that they're like this just isn't working for me they can come and talk about that and you know and see change um you know rather than a strict uh structure that denies you know women the ability to fully uh contribute I want to shift a little bit too, because one of the things that I've noticed personally and also comes up in a lot uh, with the clients I work with, um, how it's often women perpetuating the gender biases that you identify. Mm-hmm. It almost it has its own special edge to it because it's almost like this. This is not what I did, and like this competition, like there's you know there's only so many seats at the mm-hmm. table. No, mm-hmm. you know, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I just love for you to speak to that and how women often perpetuate these gender biases against other women, and why yeah. so many solutions. And it's like just be more confident, just lean in, yeah, instead of changing the culture. Yeah, I love these questions. Um, and you know, the thing about whenever a man acts in a gender biased way, if he cuts us off or if he maybe blocks an opportunity or even harasses us. 
it may be surprising, but it's really surprising when it happens for, when it's a woman that does it, right? Like we almost expect men to, to not treat us well, but we don't expect women to not treat us well. We expect women to stand up for us, right? In solidarity with our, with our female counter, counterparts, right? It could be the same behavior coming from a man and a woman. It's going to feel worse when it comes from the woman because, totally. right? In the book, we talk about this in the chapter five, which is our chapter on hostility. And we, we name it female hostility, um, broken down into two primary components, queen bee behaviors and mean girl behaviors. And the difference between the two is queen bee behaviors are um, hostility that happens from upper women who are, have a higher level than you. Now, women at the top, women who've made it, whereas the mean girl thing is more peer or lower level women being hostile okay. to to their their counterparts. Um, but they all stem from the, the, the similar place. Um, in particular, the queen bee is what you said, is this idea that they're given the idea that there's only so many seats for women at the top. And so therefore, they've they've worked hard. They've earned their perch. Right. And if they if another woman succeeds, that means that this woman believes that she's going to have to lose her hard-earned uh, uh, position. Women are often encouraged to feel that way. Um, it's a reality, you know. If, if you're in an environment where you've got this leadership team and you're the token woman, you know that, well, there's one spot for a woman, right? Right. Like, I don't want to excuse any bad behaviors from anyone, but I will say when it's when it's happening, women are perpetuating gender biases against other women. It's a self-protection mechanism. And you really have to take that step to think about, like, what is this woman, what has she experienced in her career what is she experiencing currently in her current workplace, right, that is causing her to, to act that way? And again, I'm not excusing the behavior, but no. I'm saying that it's a, it's a result of the trying to keep the, the patriarchy, you know, in place is the, Absolutely. is the goal of all of this. I definitely had empathy and compassion because, again, my most challenging bosses, supervisors were female that mm -hmm. perpetuated these things that you write about and you study. And they would probably still say, that's just the way it was. And I had yeah. to. And yeah. I get it in theory. And I'm like, but we still have choices. And even yeah. if there's small, tiny ones, like I feel like we may, may, may not be able to make second order change in the systems uh -huh. we're in, but some first order change where at least interactions with each other, we don't have to, because I, I just feel like, yeah, then, then women leaders become weaponized in this yes. patriarchal misogynist system. And it just reinforces that, especially the self-blame yep. piece too. And that is really hard to dig out in terms of how you see yourself and connect into your worthiness, your well-being. Mm -hmm. So I definitely, I can understand it. I have compassion and I, from a, in a selfish way for it. Like, yeah. it's like, okay, so I don't like hate it. But it is something that I would love to see folks go, well, this is what I had to do. And I'm resentful that other folks don't want to go through it. I'm having a lot of conversations like that lately. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, this is what we had to do. And I'm like, and how'd that go for us? Like, how, how's yeah. that, why are yeah. we holding on to this? You know? And so I just, just wanting to name that too, that, you know, really starting to, to be persistent. And that happens in relationship and that takes a lot of energy. But again, the onus again is still on the still folks that are being burdened. Yep. I'm curious for you as we wrap up, what would you say are some of the core uh, what would you identify as the core markers in practice, not just theory, of a successful work environment that not only counters gender bias, but supports inclusive leadership practices? Yeah, I, I appreciate this question. Um, so first thing is it's an environment that's cooperative instead of competitive. Mm. And I've always thought about 
there's often still in our institutions, in our organizations, there's a competitiveness that's set up internally. And that always confounds me because it's like, why do you want your employees to be competing with each other? Isn't it better that your employees all work towards the same goal, whatever that goal is of your of your organization? Sure, you might be competitive with your com- actual competitor, your the, the other, <laughs> an external organization, right? But why do you want to be competitive with, why do you want to set up your employees to be competitive with, with each other? And too many organizations still still do this. So much better to set up cooperative um, cooperative environments where everybody's pulling towards the same, the same goal and where everybody's rewarded for pulling towards the same goal rather than rewarded for being individually, you know, productive or individually, um, you know, a high performer, right? So that's one. Um, another one is that, another marker is that everyone has a voice. No one is silenced. Everybody has a right to be heard. And it's in these organizations, they really encourage the diversity of people, firstly, but also of thoughts and opinions, knowing that that's where the best ideas come from. Whenever you can have all ideas be brought to the table and not silenced and not dismissed. And also when problems arise, when there is abusive behavior, harassing behavior, when that when that arises and somebody speaks up about it, like instead of silencing them, help them deal with it. Like you got to root out the behavior so that you've got a healthy environment where everybody um, feels free to be their true selves and and provide their input to advance the the organization. Another marker is mistakes. It's about surrounding mistakes. Uh, so it's mistakes being welcomed nice. as part of the, the learning process, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, it's easy to, you know, or maybe too often we... Um, you know, punish mistakes instead of, and again, instead of welcome, welcoming them as as the learning opportunity that, that they can be. You know, as in my own work as a leader, my thing has always been like, okay, somebody makes a mistake. I say, okay, we made a mistake. We're human, right? How can we learn from this so that we don't do it again the next time? What practice or what process do we need to put in place so that next time it doesn't happen again? That's, you know, it makes a better organization when you just learn from the mistake and you can improve the organization going forward. Um, another one is being transparent about decision-making. So mm-hmm. when you have decisions to be made, make them in during your workday in a meeting that includes all the stakeholders instead of making them on the golf course, at the bar, <laughs> and the bo- whatever the boys' club activity is, right? right? Too often these activities, people are, you know, they're talking about work and they're talking about, hey, like, what do you want to do about this? But not everybody's there, right? Not yep. everybody's at that whatever that after hours event is. The tip I give is if, if, is if you're in a conversation where that's happening, let's say you are, you know, on the golf course or whatever with your buddy, then you start talking about work and you realize, no, this really needs these two other people. So, hey, why don't we wait till Monday and talk about it in a meeting with everybody who needs to be there instead of talking about it, talking about it here. And then supportive and caring. And then the other one is flexible um, in terms of, the hours yes. that people worked and in terms of the places where work gets done. Yes. Not not all work has to be done in, inside the office at a, at, you know, at your desk in the office. Of course, we know from the pandemic that remote work is impossible. And, peop- and in some instances, people are much more productive. Many instances, they're much more productive um, in roles that are that will support remote work. Even the in-person type of roles, people can be offered flexibility. Um flexible shifts, you know, the ability to swap shifts with other people, you know, time off in the middle of their shift if they've got to run and, you know, do something with their child. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to be flexible um, and not rigid um, that would be support anybody that's got anybody, any of us that have 
right. got roles outside of outside of work, which most of us do. I appreciate those. And it, you know, there's so much unlearning to be done with these systems and how we think about work or how we think about productivity, what we think about en- enough, all of this stuff. And 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 really building trust in community versus we all have to, you know, this kind of individualistic mindset of it's me or you. So yeah. I, I appreciate there's a lot to rumble with in your book. Really is a really important guide that is hopefully going to continue these conversations. So I'm really grateful for that. But as we wrap up, mm-hmm. I've got some quick fire questions yeah. <laughs> for you, just as a tradition I do on the show. Sure. And I'm curious if you could share, what are you reading right now? I bet three books that I just finished recently, and they're all on a theme. So first one is called Good for a Girl. It's by Lauren Fleshman. The second one is Choose to Run by Des Linden. And the third one is The Longest Race by Kara Goucher. These are three women runners, um, competitive runners. Uh, I used to be a runner. I wish I could still run. I can't run anymore. I cycle instead. But um, but I really appreciated reading their stories because they talk about all of the sexism and misogyny in the in, in the competitive running world. And oh wow, uh, yeah, Kara Goucher in particular had a was dealing with an abusive um, coach. Um, and you know, her I, we talk we include some exa- Kara's some of Kara's story in the in our book and related to uh, her maternity leave, which at first she was told if she got pregnant she would be able to have a leave, mm-hmm. and then later she was. Uh, and it would not impact her contract with with Nike. And then after she got pregnant, they basically reneged on that and they suspended her contract until she was able to race again. And it was just just a terrible thing. But all three women talk about um, the sexism that they experienced in the in the running industry. And so they're very fascinating, fascinating reads. And I thought I could have just like taken their their books and put them in my framework and, you know, had all six barriers (laughs) covered and, you know. Had done an analysis, but they're three very good books. You can't unsee it now, Amy. You yes, see it that's right. That's right. I'm a bit of an '80s buff, and so <laughs> I, I ask folks if they're connected to whether it's '80s or at least your childhood pop culture. What's your favorite movie from your childhood? Or <laughs> oh, 80s? So this is like, I love. So '80s is my my that's awesome. my decade too. <laughs> '80s movies, '80s music. Yep. Um, yeah, because I was yeah I was a teenager then. Um, my favorite favorite movie is Dirty Dancing, and you, I can't even tell you how many times I watched that as a, as I was a teenager. Um, so I, I think I was old enough. <laughs> Although some of the things I think went over my head even as a teenager. Um, but I watched that so many times. My friends and I would, you know, hey, what do you want to do? Let's watch Dirty Dancing. <laughs> oh my gosh, the routines that we would yes. do, and the little yeah, the little cutoff jeans with the tank top. Yeah. We get it just right. And I was, as someone who has curly, wavy hair, it was just nice to see. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, um, baby's hair, yep. Yes, yep. yes, do not put baby in a corner. And and honestly, I'm just thinking about this right now, talk about looking at the gender walls, that movie, even with its flaws, you know, it really touches on a lot of them too. Oh, yeah. So that's that's yeah. awesome. Amy, what is your mantra right now? So I don't know that I have a mantra right now, but my go-to mantra is this too, this too shall pass. So anytime I'm, you know, going through something that's hard or in a, you know, an adverse situation, I try to bring this mantra to mind just to know that I've gotten through th- other things in the past. In the past, I've survived. I, you know, I'm better, probably better for it. it. It can make it, it can help in terms of giving, giving me a little bit of perspective. It's still hard when you're in the middle of adversity and you don't know, you can't make sense of it and you don't know how to get out of it. It's still hard. But just having that mantra, knowing that it's not going to be forever, you know, is that's great. It's helpful. Yeah. What's an unpopular opinion that you hold? 
the unpopular opinion is I actually don't like listening to music as an adult. Now, I did when I was a kid. So I love 80s music. If, if I'm going to listen to anything, it's going to be 80s music. But as a as like a thing, like I don't listen to music. Um, I, I guess I prefer quietness. Um, so like if I'm in a car, you know, um, sometimes I turn on NPR. Other times I just leave it quiet because I just want to be to my own thoughts. Um, so so that's my unpopular opinion. I, I don't I don't currently as an adult like listening to music. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Can I give you two answers? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So the first one is my mother. Um, you know, my mother's been my um, role model and biggest, of course, biggest supporter growing up. And I watched her, you know, she was, she stayed home with me and my brothers until I was about nine years old. Then she went back into the workplace and I watched her develop from a, when she started back, she had to start in like a secretarial kind of a role that she turned into a professional role, but she was making secretary wages. <laughs> Um, she eventually moved to a different organization where she got professional wage for her professional role. And uh, so I've just watched her and tried to, mm. you know, emulate her. Um, the second thing that inspires me to be a better le- leader in human is my research and the women's stories. So, you know, all of these women that I've talked to, that I've read their stories, that have contributed to the survey research, I read their stories and I read what they've gone through. And it's like, I want to make sure that I can use my my own abilities to Again, put forward this research, write this book, speak about the topic and make things better for make things better for them and for other women um, uh, going forward. Amy, where can people find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah. So the best place would be my website, amy-deal.com. I've got um, a couple of forms to connect with me. I've got links to my social media accounts there. Um, so that's that's the best way to keep up with what um, you know, where I'm speaking um, and press that I've been doing, my writing, so, and also links to the book. The, the book is linked there with all of the different resellers' um, links. And we'll make sure to link to your yeah. book and your resources for sure, too. Amy, thank you so much for your time today and this conversation and for all that you're putting out in the world. It, it really matters. And I'm just really grateful for our time today. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, I want to make sure you leave with some of the key learnings from this important Unburdened Leader conversation with Dr. Amy Deal. Gosh, where to start without just recapping the entire episode, but it's important to know that Amy introduced us to some important terms, some language related to these six glass walls of gender bias. And we went a little deeper on two of them, hostility and acquiescence, which I hear about the most from my clients and colleagues. And Amy talked about the mean girls and the queen bee phenomenon and how women can turn on each other as a result of internalized gender bias. And she offered really great solutions to help us counter these insidious dynamics. We also talked about how many women fall into the glass wall of acquiescence as a protective approach for their job and their safety, but at a great cost to their values, their well-being, and their sense of purpose curious what came up for you in this conversation are you noticing where you've internalized gender bias and what are some of the gender biases that really stand out to you after listening to this conversation in your places of work or where you spend a lot of time and what is one meaningful action you want to take after listening to this conversation to help counter either internalized gender bias or gender bias in the spaces where you work and lead By first identifying our own internalized gender biases, we can stop turning on ourselves 
and collectively make greater strides to support women and those with identities who have experienced oppression from dominant culture. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. If this podcast episode impacted you, I would be honored if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with a few folks you think may benefit from it. It makes it easier for us to get the word out and is greatly, greatly appreciated. You can also find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com and a very special thanks and gratitude to the team at Yellow House Media for the production of this podcast episode.